0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Little Winds podcast. You heard last episode about Jacques Stefanik, a 23-year-old activist who founded Serving People with a Mission to Give Leadership Development Skills to Youth on the West Side of Chicago. We here at Little Winds were able to give him a $200 grant to provide backpacks, notebooks, writing supplies, and other school supplies to the youth he serves. Today, we feature a fellow Chicago activist, our guest Griffin Stahl, who will actually be making a contribution to Two Little Wins from his nonprofit organization to further our efforts. Griffin was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, and graduated from Tufts University in 2021 majoring in political science. From a young age, Griffin has been committed to activism and social justice. In early 2016, he founded We Are Able, a nonprofit dedicated to building empathy and empowering young people to be the change they wish to see in the world. Some of his initiatives have been a disability awareness campaign designed to teach people proper disability etiquette and take action on accessibility issues facing communities. Interns for Change is another initiative designed to increase equity by advocating for paid internships. Also, his nonprofit includes the Chicago Youth Council for Police Accountability, the first of its kind youth council designed to give young people a seat at the table on matters of racial justice, safety and equity. Griffin has received numerous awards and nominations, including being named a Newman Civic Fellow, a Tisch Scholar, an American Red Cross Community Impact nominee, a Young Leadership Award of Light recipient, and being named a 25 Under 25 recipient at the Global Legacy Summit. In his free time, Griffin loves to meditate, go on adventures, and travel in the, I'm sure very little free time he has in between all those accomplishments. So Griffin, my first question for you You've done everything from what we just mentioned to working on the Pete Buttigieg for America presidential election to working at the UN and as a political advertising fellow at Google. So tell me, what have been the most defining parts of your path, and how do you see your journey when you look back on it?
1: Thank you so much for for having me on, Isaac. We've known each other for a bit of time. I think it's so amazing what you've started with Little Wins. I've definitely been very privileged in the experiences I've been able to kind of have Ranging from the nonprofit field to my own organization, to the private sector as well. And I think some of the most formative moments for me have really been the networks and relationships that I have developed and fostered along the way. I think that's like the, the, the really the key to my success in a lot of ways is I've been able to formulate a lot of really incredible relationships and been so fortunate and blessed to have such amazing mentors that have guided me throughout this journey and throughout this process. You know, I, having worked in the private sector for a little bit of time with that brief stint was around six months. I ultimately returned back to the nonprofit field because for me, that's where my heart lies in terms of making community impact. I really see the way to make change and the path forward is giving power back to the people through grassroots community initiatives. And what's more, I think that these these models really need to be catalyzed by youth-driven, community-driven organizations before government can even model it properly first. So staying close to that and close to my values in Chicago and beyond is definitely the trajectory that I've, I've been on and plan to continue on. Definitely. And you talked a bit about giving
0: power back to the people. Specifically, a lot of your latest work focuses on giving power to youth. I'd love if you could talk to us a bit about you know why you chose the issue of youth empowerment, and how do you do work on that issue today?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think with with my organization, we are able. I've, I like to try and focus on being an inch deep and a mile wide in terms of the issues that I care about. But the motif that has been consistent throughout each of the initiatives has been this this focus on young people starting an organization from a young age. Myself, I understood the value of having your voice heard, having a seat at the table, but also recognizing my privilege as a white, straight, cisgendered male. I encounter difficulties having my voice heard, and I'm pretty much check every box when it comes to privilege. So, you know, the question, like, what else, what other obstacles are young people encountering when it comes to just not even having access, not having having tools, not having opportunities? So that's really where my passion and my heart lies. And, and approach that from every angle when it comes to having youth have a seat at the table. There's this beautiful quote by Shirley Chisholm, one of the first Black elected officials, and it says, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And that's exactly what we try and do. With our latest initiative, the Chicago Youth Council for Police Accountability, there was such a lack of engagement when it came to young people getting involved in matters of policing. This was following George Floyd and, and numerous other acts of police brutality that we were seeing. So there's a natural opportunity for us to organize, mobilize, and create that opportunity, catalyze that level of impact for young people to really be invited to these conversations and pioneer the effort, far more so than a number of our adult city leaders are doing when it comes to this level of police reform and accountability.
0: Definitely. And for those who are unfamiliar, can you explain what the Chicago Youth Council for Police Accountability is and the work that you do there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this was started about two, three years ago. The impetus for it was after the killing of George Floyd, as I had mentioned, and as a part of kind of the organizing that I had done, I had created a community conversation that we were going to do virtually to at the time address the health disparities and equities that we were seeing due to the rise of the COVID-19 pandemic. About a day before that call, was the murdering of George Floyd and completely altered and shifted the way we were thinking about having this conversation. One of the folks who happened to be on that call the next day was Gian Foreman, who is the president of the Chicago Police Board. And during that virtual call, where we were able to kind of defy normal geographic barriers and bring together people from the Southwest North side of Chicago all in one you know, Zoom room, I had pressed him on what youth engagement looked like. Not to my surprise, there was none. And that really was the launch pad for our journey to found this youth council that was going to empower young people to more deeply engage, engage in the work of the Chicago Police Board, amplify young people's voices that have historically been underrepresented and, and underutilized and get people more engaged in these conversations and these dialogues. So we received unanimous approval from the board to create this Q- youth council. We are funded and supported by the Chicago Community Trust. And I'm so blessed and fortunate to have so many other community organizations partner with us and uplift us in this journey, ranging from Meekfa Challenge, from Illinois Justice Project, from Youth Guidance, from BAM, like you name it. And, and we've done the work to, to, to foster relationships because ultimately that's what it's about. This work is not gonna be done without some significant community healing and building those relationships and those partnerships is the first step in doing that.
0: And referencing back to your quote that you mentioned about You know, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. In what ways have you found that that has rung true for you, in which maybe the adults in the room have not exactly been so welcoming to youth trying to claim a seat at the table and not be given one? Uh, What challenges have you faced there?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't know where this this rhetoric stems from, but there's just this paradigm that exists of young people being bad, being you know, misbehaving and not contributing positively to society. And that's just completely untrue. And, and to be frank, it probably comes from older generations continuing to perpetuate these systems and these misdoings of wrongful opportunity and wrongful access. So that's what really needs to be addressed going forward, you know, in my own experience it's incredibly tough to get grant funding as a young person. Nobody really takes you seriously. I'm 23 years old now, so I can't really call myself like that young. But back in the day, you know, 15, 16, when we were really getting this organization off the ground, you're kind of looked at as the cute kid who is trying to do good in their community. And that's great. That definitely can get you in the room and open some doors. But it's you're kind of put at the high chair, right? You're not put at a proper, proper seat. So when we talk about getting access to the table, we don't want to be put in the high chair. We want to be in the seat, making decisions, having our voices heard. So many of these organizations preach these you know, values of uplifting youth voices and creating youth opportunities. But what are they really doing when it comes to actually having youth at their board meetings and engaging them in their conversations that are, are related to like allocations of funds to programming in the next you know, fiscal year? So there's a lot that like needs to be done when it comes to like practice versus implementation and i try to you know practice what i preach when it comes to all of our youth council members get a 500 stipend because it's super unfair unequitable and unjust to expect that young people are going to like be able to donate their time to serve your organization and that's going to be free when in reality there's so much data and so much research that supports that having an, a paid internship versus having an an unpaid internship, disproportionately affects people of color tremendously. So there's a ton of work that needs to be done in that capacity as well. But there's, I know there's so many different avenues to approach this, right? I think the high chair one is a really great analogy to give, but it also comes to just building partnerships. I feel like so many people have their own agendas when it comes to this work, which is also ironic to me because ultimately we're all like trying to do good, but there still seems to be a subtle malicious mentality that takes place. And I really try to overcome those because we're on the same team, ultimately, like, I, I don't believe any organization who has dedicated their time and their service to working in this space wants to see any any other person fail. It's just unfortunate that we live in an environment where we're so reliant and competitive related to grant funding. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed going forward as well. So, you know, Little Wind is doing tremendous work when it comes to, like, on a micro scale, addressing that that inact- like inequity when it comes to grant funding, like serving people with mission, Jock's a good friend of mine, and I know that that money went to good use when it came to the grant he received.
0: Definitely, and I think you know something you said really rang true is that a lot of these grant giving organizations, you know, or just organizations in general, whenever they have a youth council for X, Y, and Z, it seems a lot more like they want to uplift youth bases on their website and in their press releases been really uplifting youth voices and what they have to say. I'm really curious to hear from you, what is it like, by my calculation, when you mentioned when you were in 2015, 2016, you know, trying to get these funds, and you're 23 now, so doing some math, you were 17, pitching these grant-making organizations for thousands of dollars. You know, what is it like to be in that room for the first time talking to illustrious, you know, presidents of multi-million dollar philanthropic organizations, what is that like? Take me back there.
1: Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's definitely intimidating at, at first and I can't even lie, it took, I remember very, very clearly the first time I ever gave a public speech, for whatever reason, it was a keynote speech. They decided that would be a good idea. And I threw up in the morning. I was so nervous. I was so, so terrified, but it ended up, you know, really padding that kind of journey in public speaking, which I love. But I guess, you know, and I can use it as an opportunity to, to garner some advice as well. I think what kind of, you know, allows, allows you to supersede those feelings of intimidation or anxiety is ultimately coming back to your why. I was in those rooms for a reason. You know, I was getting that funding for a reason. And it wasn't, you know, to like make myself known, right? Like it was like I was, we were working to better our communities, to educate young people, to empower young people on whatever initiative we were doing at the time. And that funding was an imperative part of of doing so. So no, like, and this is now speaking, I guess, directly to young people, like, no, you're deserving of being in that room, by invitation or not, like by by caring about these values, and like these issues, like you are deserving of being in that room and having that voice heard. I'm a huge quote person, just like very cheesy in that respect. I'll probably drop some more throughout the, the remainder of this, you know, conversation. But Nietzsche, who's a, you know, a famous, infamous philosopher, once said, that, like, those who have a why to live for can bear almost any how. And I truly, truly believe that. I didn't know what I was doing when I started my organization. I, I And people say that I truly had no idea what I was doing, but I had the reason why I was doing it. And that was the important piece. And I figured out the rest along the way.
0: When, when you think... Back to, you know, when you were pitching these places and your work today, what, what do you think it kind of boils down to your personal why?
1: Yeah. That's also the beautiful thing about self-discovery is you're constantly finding new, new whys and new, new things that like impact your life. My journey, I guess, into this space was, and the impetus for it was, was due to my experiences with my father. So my dad was diagnosed with advanced multiple sclerosis before I was born and confined to a wheelchair before that as well. So I never had the opportunity to see him walk. Obviously, you know, that was a t- difficult thing for me to cope with as a kid. And then ultimately when I was 16 in 2015, he had passed away due to complications and just kind of like that lifelong battle. You know, I always say he didn't die. He just ran out of days to live. because. Um, my organization and what I have done since then is, to me, a living tribute to him and everything he taught me related to empathy, to entrepreneurship, to perseverance, to resilience along the way. So that was, you know, was and has been and still is a large part of my why, but that also transcends now to a number of other issues. You know, we talk about this Youth Council, the Chicago Youth Council for Police Accountability I had mentioned before the level of privilege I have, that you know, applies directly here. By and large, the people that are benefiting from this youth council are not my neighbors, not the people that live on the north side of Chicago, not people that look like me. It's unfortunately black and brown kids on the west side of Chicago, west and south side of Chicago. So having that level of perspective and also understanding that being a leader and being an ally are not mutually exclusive things are super important to me. This is probably one of my favorite quotes of all time and really one of my guiding stars when it comes to everything I do now. It's by Aboriginal activist Lila Watson. And it says, if you've come to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And I think that is so poetically said when it comes to understanding that Disability justice, racial justice, women's rights, any issue that you choose to dive into does not operate in a vacuum. These are all deeply, deeply interconnected. And if I think that any level of racism or police brutality that goes on in Chicago does not affect me, any level of attempt to choose what a woman can do with her body doesn't affect me. Like we are doing a gross, gross misservice to these movements because they require all of us to get involved and the support of all of us to really make this level of impact happen. So that's, you know, my guiding star and why I feel like I'm able to operate in all these different initiatives and all these different campaigns, because to me, they're not separate issues. They're one and the same. And it's leading with empathy and, and having those whys close to my heart, post like, you know, the just, I guess, desire to see the world in a better place, that hopeless idealism, and then also my own personal experiences with with trauma and with grief that have carried me to this point.
0: Definitely, and I think, you know, this kind of harkens back to something you said earlier about, you know, just in general, your why always changing and your why being dynamic. And I think the journey of getting into social impact as a life interest, as a career field, You know, with volunteering, whatever way, big or small, that you get into it, it's less of, you know, this is the one thing that matters to me, and I'm going to work on that. But much more so that you realize that everything, you know, the idea of justice is interconnected to everyone who lives without it. And it's really, you know, as Martin Luther King said, to toss a quote back at you, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and it, it really rings true, and I think this journey of social impact is really about being an engaged citizen across the burden of understanding, you know, dozens of issues that you kind of have to put on your shoulders once you open your eyes to it, you can't really close them again. It's, it becomes very, very tough. So, you know, I come into contact with a lot of people that kind of are like, why are you bouncing around all these issues? And it's, it's just being an engaged citizen and, and, you know, believing in the myth of justice. So I,
1: you know, toss that back to you. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, one of my favorite authors, has this, probably one of the most famous TED Talks of all time, where she warns the danger of a single story. And I think that really aligns nicely with what you were saying. Also, when it comes to our, like, and she relates that to your identity, the danger of a single story when it comes to to your identity and getting so wrapped up and just seeing yourself linearly when we're these dynamic humans, multifaceted individuals with diverse interests and unique qualities, I think one of the most powerful and transformative lessons slash activities that I've ever been a part of and I continue to incorporate in all of my interactions with young people is like the development of their own personal narratives because that that narrative is ever changing and ever evolving but to understand your core values, who you are at your purest form and understanding that you know your you don't have to be defined by your fate you can use your pain your past your trauma as a catalyst for change is game changing a complete shift in how you can see the world and how you can use your power and harness and own your power because i think one of the things that unites us all and like is oftentimes neglected when it comes to like just everyday interactions is like this just base understanding of we've all been through stuff, right? Like we all have experienced hardship. We've all experienced pain, suffering to some degree. Those experiences are all unique and valid and you can't compare or like negate somebody else's suffering because those are all unique to one another. But to bring it back, you know, like use that experience, whatever it may be for you and take that and to start to develop and think concretely about like, how does that experience connect with my values? How do these values connect with this issue? How do these issues connect with this like broader way of life? And just start to flush out this narrative because being able to articulate your narrative, your personal narrative, and compare that with other people and bring that into the rooms will absolutely get you a seat at the, that table when it comes to like those grant opportunities, those networking opportunities. I think that is like an instrumental part of a changemaker's journey and the change maker's identity is like first developing like who you are and not even knowing fully, but like starting, starting the puzzle. Yeah. And I think
0: that's the thing about values is once you do realize them, it can be a bit annoying to have, you know, they nag at you and say your behavior could be hypocritical in X, Y, Z ways. They force you to, you know, see things clearly. Cause when something is true, it's just so hard to ignore. No matter how much you might disagree with it or have been blind to it or be in denial of it, when you have this strong value, it just kind of forces you to see it. And, you know, that really reminds me of my own personal experience. Just you're talking about your why is that, you know, I at one point in my life lost about 70 pounds of weight and had been about 240, 230 when I was 17 years old. So right about the time when you're pitching all these nonprofits. <laughs> But I was, you know, and eventually sort of went on this journey of weight loss and saw the incredibly stark and harsh societal difference of how people treat you when you look one way versus another, how seriously your ideas are taken, how much people talk to you in a room, whether that's, you know, at a school meeting, at a business meeting, just, you know, you you are respected in an entirely different way one way, almost not at all, and the other way, you know, people just kind of assume that you are competent and, you know, your ideas are worth hearing. So, you know, once you have that value as sort of seeing the ways that you can be treated based on something arbitrary, then you really start to apply that to other parts of your life, and it starts to open up your eyes to, you know, these other areas that deserve for you to work on And serve your time and your effort and your you know your blood, sweat, and tears. So I think what you said really brings true.
1: Yeah, I mean, diet culture in America is so problematic for so many reasons. But I mean, yeah, we all have you know a finite amount of energy, and I think where you direct that energy is incredibly important and powerful for your growth. I have chosen to direct that energy towards this journey. For me, that is the nonprofit space you know, this kind of like spiritual pursuit and also on as well. For some people, that's like my brother's in finance, and he chose to direct his energy towards that. Like, we all have our different paths, all unique, all beautiful, all acceptable. And I think helping get in touch with your values is like a huge step forward and like finding out where your energy is going to be the director that where you want to direct that as well.
0: Definitely. And speaking about that,
1: you know, finite amount of
0: time and energy that we have to find a path and pour ourselves into it. You know, what advice would you give to young people still looking to find out what their path is? Cause I know you've been able to develop such a clear ideology and value system. You know, what would you tell someone just starting out on that journey?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing I'll, I'll reiterate it again is, is start to, to own that personal narrative and, and think through what it is for you. There's like cool activities. You can even Google online. If you look up like a value sorting activity, it'll like present you with like, you know, 50 or something values you'll break them down, you'll knock them down to 25, from 25 to 15, from 15 to 10, from 10 to like, and you ultimately try and get down to like your top five core values. It's a lot harder than it sounds, but incredibly powerful when it comes to like, wow, like this is really what's important to me. And that then can be, you know, expanded to so many other issue areas or friendships or familial relationships. Um, The second thing, which is just as important, if not more is, building relationships, the power of a hello is wild. I would not be where I am today without the level of mentorship and guidance that I have, I've achieved. So if you're ever at a networking event, even if you just like see somebody online that inspires you, shoot them a DM, shoot them an email. You never know the response you may get. I think people very much underestimate their power when it comes to building relationships. and. Their confidence when it comes to doing so. Generally, everybody in this space is very nice. So I would strongly encourage you to just say hello, say you, uh, you know, admire their work, would love to get involved in some capacity, share with them ideas you have and see where the relationship can go from that. And then I think the third piece is, you know, also just being the change that you want to see. I think it's one thing to talk about it, and then it's one thing to do it there's a lot of talking that goes on in the realm of social justice. Everyone loves to complain about all of the problems and don't get me wrong. There are a lot of problems and nothing seems to be changing. I won't lie that like there's high burnout in this work because it just feels like you're working and you're working and you're swimming in the same place. But I think using that frustration as a force for good and getting involved with actual on the ground opportunities and not just like you know slacktivism tweeting or instagramming behind the screen like getting involved having a conversation donating some money attending an event these are the things that are going to make a real change and you know obviously i cannot forget voting that is by or none the most important thing everybody can do anybody is listening as soon as you're 18 register to vote and uh, make sure you cast your ballot election coming up in chicago actually what like this this week next week so Mm -hmm. super important that that we show up and show support in that yeah for
0: those not receiving this you know live it is the election is on tuesday june 28th so definitely go out and vote if you're in the chicago area but on that note you know of young people getting civically involved i'm curious what do you see when you work with youth you know does it give you more hope what do you kind of see from this generation
1: i i exclusively get hope from this generation it's all it's all a matter of perspective you know you can choose to continue like perpetuate these negative narratives of young people or you could choose to see them as the next generation of change the next generation of leaders which they are and and for me it 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 instills in me this like continued level of like youthful spirit at the same time too i think young people are And i guess i would like to consider myself a young person still too but like i'm talking about proper young people like high schoolers and and in lower um their their capacity to make change is incredible because that's when you develop empathy for the first time and empathy is a skill you learn it's not something you're innately born with and to have you know to see it in real life to see a young person you're working with like have that light bulb click as they develop their personal narrative, as they like find something they're really passionate about for the first time, that is like one of the most spectacular feelings in the world. Cause it goes back to that quote, right? Like your liberation is bound up with mine. I don't wanna leave this world knowing I left it worse than I found it. And that's kind of what amazing feelings that like I had was not necessarily like a specific individual, but like after the first ever initiative that my organization had done back in 2016 it was you know a campaign we led in chicago public schools to educate people on proper disability etiquette to take action on accessibility based in communities and to teach people the difference between offering empathy and offering sympathy we sent out a survey following the event we had like 400 people participate in our first year 98 percent of those people expressed that they felt they like developed some level of empathy 99 percent of people expressed that they like felt like they are more able like better able to communicate with people with disabilities and a hundred percent of people expressed that they would like want to continue working with us in the future so not even like take away the the fact that they like they want to work with us in the future those two facts right there that they can better communicate with people with disabilities and that they learned to develop empathy and understand the difference between empathy and sympathy 400 people think about the ripple effect that that can have. I didn't ask them to memorize like all 10, 20 facts of disability etiquette that we had taught them. I asked them to remember one. If you could learn one piece of disability etiquette and the next time you see somebody inappropriately like interacting with somebody with a disability and you stop the interaction, you intervene, you're an upstander, that creates a domino effect, a ripple effect, an avalanche of change makers that are better equipped and better able to be leaders in our society when it comes to these things. So some of those individuals, you know, went on to continue to be leaders in our organization. I still work with them to this day. Others, you know, went on their own change-making journeys in different capacities. But I think that that ripple effect is a super, a super cool and important piece to keep in mind that, you know, you're not, the work you're doing is not temporary. It, It has, it has sustained impact that like, will we'll stay with people. I still remember the volunteer projects that I got in from a very young age and the people that were involved in it. So it's like, to know that you're impacting somebody's life is a powerful thing. And that's, you know, it, it all goes back to why we do this, right? To, to impact, to change, to empower. Definitely.
0: And I, I'm not sure if it's a Martin Luther King quote or not, but it's something to the effect of to save one life is to save the entire universe. And I think, you know, really, and I've been I've been on the board of, of nonprofits that, you know, do large initiatives, but there's really nothing like sitting across the table, helping one person at a time. And I would encourage, you know, anyone who does this social impact work and does it on nights and weekends and outside the nine to five, you know, to avoid that burnout, I think it is so key to, sit in front of the impact that you're having and really just see it on a one-on-one scale. You know, even though you might always be trying to get to the bigger thing or the way to reach more people, you really got to mix in that one-on-one interaction because there's really nothing else like it in terms of life satisfaction with your impact. And, you know, to kind of ask you my second last question, I'm curious, where do you see your work going in the future? And where do you want to allocate, you know, your future finite talents?
1: Yeah, good question. I wish I had a better answer for you <laughs> than what I do. I once received a really amazing piece of advice that I love to share because it changed my perspectives on this whole idea of like a career path. This individual told me that it's not a career path, it's a career mosaic. And I, I, you know, I love art, I love that level of creativity. And I think that's that's that was such a cool analogy for me because it let me feel at ease with like just being comfortable and almost just like surrendering to the journey to come. I know I'm going to stay close to this space. This space is in like the nonprofit and social impact field. What organization I work for, what initiative I do next, like all that stuff is, you know, very up in the air and I'm very receptive and open to the opportunities. With all that said, I remain very committed to continuing to build out this youth council, the Chicago Youth Council for Police Accountability. We're just wrapping up its first year. We've proved its viability and now it's time to really prove its efficacy. There's really nothing like this youth council, in my opinion. A number of youth councils exist for like existing established organizations, but no youth-led, youth-serving peer-to-peer network of young people that are really active, like activating one another for the betterment of each other and getting involved in these like critical, critical issues. So I think the world is really our, our, our oyster when it comes to to building that out. And I think there's a number of exciting opportunities to come with We Are Able and with these Youth Council specifically and just, you know, professionally as well. But I also advocate strongly that it's important to have fun and take care of your mental health, find self-care routines, because I, I unfortunately learned the hard way what burnout can do to somebody. And now I get to you know, preach the beauty of, of self-care and, and its benefits.
0: Definitely. Well, we'll have to change it for the next time to the fact that Griffin is a leading fun activist advocating for it across the world, <laughs> but, yes. you know, for my last question, we asked this to all of our guests, you and the one other one we've had previously, you know, what do you need from our audience, whether it is volunteer time, donations... You know something else? What do you what do you need if you're gonna kind of put it out there for people to give you?
1: Yeah, what a great question to end on. I think it'll be cool one day, like you know, make a like a little montage compilation of all these people's answers. It's what it's we need is actually, actually gonna be money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me all the money. No, you know, obviously, I don't think anybody anybody who's doing this work right who doesn't say money. You know, that's like a, a, a problematic. But truthfully, what we need is action. I think, in my mind, I'm always thinking about how we can move people from awareness to saliency and ultimately to action. We just had a pretty outstanding event about a month ago, our youth council did. We called it Youth Youth Organizing Until Trauma Heals. Incredible panelists, incredible attendees, but that room was not as full as we wanted it to be. I think that illustrates a problem. We needed that room to be full in order for this impact to be had, that room should have been full. So going forward, what do we need? We need you amazing fellow Chicagoans to show up, to be a part of the dialogue, to be a part of the change making, because it won't just happen with the people that are currently involved. We need more. We need collaboration. We need community. That's what this ultimately is, community organizing. It's not individuals organizing, it's community organizing. And I think with, with that strength, with that power, that is real power, we will ultimately affect the level of change that I think we also desire to see. Definitely. Well, thank
0: you so much for your answer there, for your time today, and for your contribution to Little Winds. We will be following up on that at a later date. But you know, thank you so much for being here. Griffin Saul, everyone.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure.